0: If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. We'll also be reading verses 63 through 65. So we're going to skip over that narrative about uh, Peter denying Jesus after he is arrested. So we'll be reading Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53, which includes the account of Jesus' betrayal uh, by the hands of Judas, his arrest by the religious leaders of his day, and then in verses 63 through 65 as he is mocked by his captors. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. Please pay careful attention For this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, skipping down to verses 64 through uh, 65, we read regarding uh, these captors who are watching over Jesus. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, we are entering some of the darkest pages of Scripture here at the end of Luke chapter 22 and as we make our way into Luke 23. You'll notice that in verse 53, Jesus turns to his captors and he says, This is your hour, the power of darkness. These are some of the darkest pages in Scripture As we hear Jesus being betrayed, arrested, mocked, condemned by Pilate, and then crucified. If you think of this section of Luke's gospel as an audio speaker, it's as if with each successive passage, Luke is turning up the volume of Jesus' suffering, which reaches its crescendo when Jesus is hanging on that Roman crucifix. Well, in this passage in particular, I want us to focus on the beginnings of these final sufferings of our Lord. We will consider Jesus' betrayal from one of his own, Judas. We'll consider Jesus' arrest by the religious leaders of his day. We'll consider Jesus' mockery that's done by those who are holding him captive. Now, what's the point of the sufferings of Jesus? In one sense, these things are the necessary preconditions that need to happen if Jesus is going to be crucified. If Jesus is going to be crucified, then of course he's going to need to be handed over. He's going to need to, in some sense, be betrayed and arrested. So they are necessary preconditions for the gospel proper, Jesus' death on the cross. That's true. However, this passage is much more than just the necessary preconditions, the prelude to Jesus' death on the cross and the accomplishment of his Father's will. This passage directly, directly proclaims the gospel to us. It's not just the necessary precondition to the gospel, but this passage directly announces and foreshadows for us what Jesus will accomplish on the cross. This passage in itself convicts us of where we're at in our own sin and misery. This passage also gives us an example that we are to emulate, and therefore this passage is immensely practical. Practical in that it it, it touches upon our ordinary practice and our lives in the here and now. And so what I want us to consider this morning is how this passage, this passage about Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, and Jesus' mockery, convict us. This passage foreshadows for us what Jesus will accomplish on the cross, and then this passage also serves as an example that we are to imitate. So it convicts us, it foreshadows the cross, and it also serves as an example. You'll notice that this passage begins with this note about how Judas, Jesus' betrayer, and his captors, Jesus' captors, come to Jesus while he was still speaking. Remember last week? Jesus was in the garden, the Mount of Olives, with his disciples, and he exhorted his disciples twice, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus himself then prayed to his father, agonizing over this cup that he knew was looming ahead of him the very next afternoon. He comes back to his disciples who were called to persevere in prayer, and he finds them sleeping for sorrow. And he says yet again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thus, while he was still speaking, Judas and the captors are there. Now Jesus confronts this scene and this narrative and, this, and his, his captors and his betrayer with a calm. He doesn't seek to flee. He doesn't defend himself. He knows his father's will for his life. He knows that there's a cup awaiting him in less than 24 hours that he will have to drink to its dregs. He knows that this has to happen. Now, we don't know exactly when Judas left. The disciples left Jesus. We know he was at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. But he likely didn't accompany the disciples and Jesus to the Mount of Olives, where they would reside during the evenings. So we don't know exactly when Judas left the disciples. But we do learn here that Judas approaches Jesus, and he approaches Jesus to kiss him. Judas Judas seeks to betray Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss signifies the reception of one's uh, person and message. If you recall in chapter 7, when Jesus, is, is, his feet is being, are being washed and anointed with oil and kissed uh, by that, that pious woman, kisses are a reception of one's message and, and person. Therefore, as one commentator notes, Judas's treachery in this passage is p- portrayed as a betrayal of intimacy. Again, Judas is one of Jesus' own disciples, and yet it is one of his own disciples, one of those people who are closest to him who will betray him. Thus, a kiss is, in this sense, a very appropriate way for Judas to betray Jesus. It signifies the heights of, Of his treachery. This is a betrayal of intimacy. So we read that Judas approaches Jesus to betray him with a kiss, and then Jesus responds to this approach. Notice what Jesus says. He says in verse 48 Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, in the original language of this verse, this word betray is in the emphatic position. So, if you would have been hearing this book read to you in the original context, which is how this book was delivered originally, you would have heard that Luke intentionally places this word betray in the emphatic position. He wants his hearers and his readers to latch on to the action that Judas is committing in this scene, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? Jesus uses a title to refer to himself. Now, the Son of Man refers to many things, but one thing that it refers to is Jesus' messianic identity. Therefore, Jesus, in referring to himself by this title, the Son of Man continues to heighten the heinousness and wickedness of this betrayal and this act of Judas. Judas is betraying the Messiah of God, the Christ. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? One thing I want to draw your attention to, specifically here in Luke's account of this narrative, is that Luke doesn't narrate the kiss itself. We learn about Judas approaching Jesus. We learn about Jesus' response to the approach. And then the narrative skips over the kiss itself, and we learn about the disciples' response to Judas's betrayal. Matthew differs in this regard. Matthew tells us explicitly when he is recounting this narrative, That Judas kissed Jesus. One commentator very perceptively notes that Luke portrays this act, specifically this kiss that Judas gives Jesus, as unworthy of narration. That's how wicked it is. Luke doesn't even want to put it to words. That is how heinous and wicked this betrayal is by one of Jesus' own disciples. Now, what are the disciples' response as they are witnessing this? Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. This is Judas. This is one of your own fellow disciples. This is one of your friends who is coming to betray Jesus with a kiss. I don't know about you, but I think we all would be pretty enraged at this moment. You're going to betray Jesus and you're going to have the audacity to do it with a kiss? At least be embarrassed and shameful sitting in the corner. But no, you're completely confident and bold with regard to this wicked act. And the disciples are angry. They don't want this to happen. Their justice alarm is going off inside. This is unjust. We need to do something. And so one of the disciples, John's account of this narrative tells us that it was Peter. Peter unsheathes his sword and seeks to defend Jesus. And he slices off the ear of the servant of the high priest who is there as one of the captors. Jesus' response to this is very illuminating. I want to read from John chapter 18 verse 11. This is John's account of the same narrative and he adds a little bit more color to Jesus' response. John says this. He says to Peter, who just cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, he said, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember Jesus just minutes or hours before, was agonizing in prayer, sweating profusely because he knows that the will of his Father includes a cup the very next day that he will have to drink for his people. This shows us that Peter and the disciples are completely confusing the mission of Jesus. Peter and the disciples, who at this time think that Jesus' mission includes some sort of theocratic earthly kingdom, are seeking to, to wield a physical sword to defend Jesus. Now, if we should see ourselves in these disciples. Now, the disciples are those who will go on and carry on the baton of Jesus' work of, of building the kingdom of God in the New Covenant Church, and as members of this same New Covenant Church, we should see ourselves in these disciples. Now, Peter and likely the rest of the disciples, they are confusing Jesus' spiritual mission with a, with a political, cultural mission. This is why they' uh, Peter's unsheathing the sword. He thinks that Jesus is here to build a theocratic earthly kingdom. Now if Jesus's mission was cultural or political in nature, then by that standard, we would have to judge that Jesus was a complete failure. If Jesus's mission, was to establish an earthly theocracy like the theocracy that the Israel of old enjoyed under David and Solomon, then Jesus completely failed. If Jesus' mission was to establish a Jewish nation as a global superpower that rivaled the dominance of Rome at that time, then Jesus completely failed. If Jesus' mission was to fight the culture wars of the first century, then again, Jesus completely failed. Think about the disciples. He didn't raise their economic status in life. He decreased it. They were more poverty-stricken after they met Jesus than they were before. But Jesus' mission was not cultural or political in nature at all. Jesus' mission was spiritual. Jesus came to this earth with a single-eye focus upon the mission that his father had given him before the creation of the world. And what did that mission include? It included a cup. A cup that was filled to the brim that Jesus would drink on Good Friday. It included this life of righteousness that is provided to us so that we can stand before the creator of the heavens and the earth with uplifted head. It includes Jesus giving to us a citizenship. A citizenship that does not reside or is connected to any earthly nation or state, but a citizenship that resides in heaven, that's attached to the new creation. And the mission, then, that Jesus gives to his disciples, the mission that Jesus gives to the church, is to announce and proclaim the accomplishment of Jesus' mission here on earth that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for your sins. That Jesus has provided an alien, imputed righteousness to you, for you. That Jesus has provided a citizenship that you yourself cannot earn by your own works. That is the job of the church. Jesus himself did not wield a physical sword. He did not come to fight earthly battles and establish an earthly theocracy. He did not call his disciples to do the same. And he did not give the physical sword to the church. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war, or we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You just notice what Jesus is, uh, Paul is saying there. He's saying, That the church, though they walk according to the flesh, meaning we have physical bodies, we inhabit this created universe, we do not wage war according to the flesh. We have not been given physical weapons to wield, but rather the church has been given spiritual weapons. Spiritual weapons that possess divine power to destroy strongholds. That's what Paul is saying. Now in the context of Luke 22, I also think it's striking when we examine Peter in particular. Peter, rather than wielding a physical sword, when this moment of temptation comes, he should have obeyed Jesus' previous exhortation that he just heard. What did Jesus just command the disciples to do? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The church has been given these spiritual weapons that include the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. That includes the sacraments and prayer. These are the weapons that we are called to wield. And thus Peter should have taken up the spiritual weapon that Jesus had told him to wield. And not the physical sword. When temptation comes, Jesus says, you need to pray. Not physically defend yourselves and fight a holy war. I also think that it's interesting that you know, the apostles here, they don't get it. They're completely confused over the nature of Jesus' mission. But after Pentecost, I truly believe that the disciples and the apostles get it. They get the mission that Jesus accomplished here on earth, and they also get the mission that the church has during these two advents of Christ. When you read the epistles, Paul, Peter, John, and many others Not once will you find one of the apostles making an appeal to the Roman Senate or making an appeal to Caesar Augustus regarding the hot-button cultural and political issues of the day, including uh, slavery or infanticide or imperial or economic issues or immigration, immigration policy. Not once do you hear about an appeal that is made by the Christian church to Caesar Augustus. What do you hear? You hear the church, the apostles, announcing the accomplishment of Jesus' mission here on earth. You hear the announcement and application of the Ten Commandments, the law, to the life of the people. This is the mission of the church. And so this passage is coming to us as a means to convict us regarding our expectation of the institutional church in this age. This passage comes to us as a means to convict us regarding our expectations of the institutional church in this age. Are we expecting the church to wield the sword? Not just in a holy war sense, but in the sense of having a foot in the cultural wars and battles of this age, or having a seat at the political table. Or are we content with the mission that Christ himself gave to this church, to announce and proclaim? The accomplishment of Jesus' mission here on earth, that good news can be only found in the church. And that is why the church so desperately needs to remain steadfast and focused upon her mission. This passage is given to us to convict us regarding our view of the institutional church. Well, this passage also serves to foreshadow, as I previously mentioned, it serves to foreshadow for us what Jesus will accomplish on the cross. This passage isn't merely a necessary precondition to the cross. We see what actually takes place on the cross foreshadowed in Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and his mockery. It's that that I want us to focus on here for a a few moments What do we see here in this passage? How does Jesus conduct himself? Jesus displays a complete non-retaliatory ethic. He is betrayed, and Jesus tells his disciples, put down your swords. He is arrested, and he does not fight. He is mocked, but yet he willingly continues to take more and more sins and offenses committed against his own person it's as if he's just rolling over and okay with being sinned against we see here jesus's non-retaliatory ethic it's this theme that will be fulfilled on the afternoon of good friday on the cross so let's consider how this theme is fulfilled in the cross justice says justice requires that punishment must must be given in response to a crime. Punishment must be given in response to a crime. And furthermore, justice says that the punishment must fit the crime, meaning the punishment shouldn't be greater than the crime and the punishment shouldn't be less than the crime. Justice says that the punishment must be proportionate to the crime that is committed. The way in which this principle of justice was was uh, 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 portrayed in in Israel's legal code in the Old Testament was through the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Meaning if I pluck out someone's eye then justice says my eye deserves to be plucked out. If I punch out someone's tooth then I deserve my tooth to be punched out. Strict, proportionate justice. What happens on the cross? Is the cross that moment where God retaliates against us? Is the cross the moment where God judges us for our sin? Is the cross the moment where God metaphorically plucks out our eye because of our sins? No. The cross is the height of God's non-retaliation. This passage, we see Jesus continuing to take more and more sins and offenses committed against his own person. Well, the cross is that moment where Jesus will take all of the sins of the Father's people and have them laid upon his back, as it were. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that, That uh, God, particularly on the cross, God made Christ to become our sin. He takes all of our sins, not just in the sense that our sins are committed against him, but he takes the punishment for those sins. So the pinnacle of Jesus' non-retaliation is that he goes to the cross and bears all of the sins of his Father's people. And So the cross is the height of God's non-retaliation. However, it's non-retaliation whereby justice is still satisfied. God doesn't just merely overlook our sins. Indeed, he cannot do that if he still wants to maintain his justice. And therefore, God on the cross beautifully was able to display this non-retaliatory ethic towards us while at the same time satisfying his own claims to justice. How? Well, Christ on the cross takes The punishment that our sins deserve. Justice says that a punishment must be meted out when crimes are are committed. And therefore Christ takes upon himself the punishment which your sins have earned so that God can now extend mercy, love, grace, and reconciliation towards you. One way to further describe what's going on here is in the words of uh, Matthew 5. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, tells his disciples at the end, in the middle of the the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you know, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or no, uh, yeah, you have heard that it was said in Israel's legal code, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But he now says, uh, but I say to you, Disciples of the kingdom of God, I say to you, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. He's telling his disciples to display a non retaliatory ethic. However, we see Jesus perfectly fulfills what he commands. Think of our sin as a slap to God, an affront to his holiness and righteousness. Justice says that we deserve a retaliatory slap. We deserve judgment. We deserve our eye to be plucked out, our tooth to be punched in. On the cross, we see that God in Christ takes the second slap. God can't just overlook our sin. If we have slapped God, a second slap needs to be issued if he, if he will continue to be just. In the cross, we see that God takes in Christ that second retaliatory slap. And satisfies his own claims to justice so that mercy and grace and reconciliation can be extended to us. The cross is that moment where justice and mercy kiss. God is able to uphold his justice while at the same time being merciful to us. Delivering us from his just judgment. And so when we see Jesus' non retaliatory ethic here, that theme is fulfilled on the cross, where God in Christ has his second eye plucked out, as it were, his second tooth punched in, and he takes that second retaliatory slap so that we are not judged. This is the gospel. This is the good news that is foreshadowed for us. Even before he hangs on that cross. As he is reviled, but yet he does not revile in return. So this passage is not merely a necessary precondition, but it contains the gospel in itself. The good news that we desperately need. Well, lastly and briefly, we also see that this passage serves as an example for us. So it not only convicts us, it not only foreshadows the cross, but it serves as an example that we are to imitate. So listen listen to how Peter, the same Peter who drew his sword to cut off the, the, the ear of the servant of the high priest, the same Peter who will, as we see next week, deny our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter's interpretation of this narrative remember the epistles interpret the drama of scripture. So 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23 say for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How is Peter interpreting the sufferings of Christ? He's interpreting them as an example that we are to imitate. Christ Jesus also suffered, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So this passage is given to us in part to be an example to imitate, which means that, uh, you know, as we've already seen, the church as an institution is not to wield the physical sword. But even us as individual Christians in our interpersonal relationships with one another, we are not called to pick up even our metaphorical swords and seek to get even. That should not be our impulse. And so when we are sinned against, when someone is rude or unkind or inconsiderate, Is our initial impulse to seek tit-for-tat justice? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I need to get even because my honor has been besmirched. Is that our impulse? Retribution or is reconciliation our impulse? Are we willing to be sinned against in our own person so that mercy and grace and reconciliation can be pursued and fostered with those in our life? And in this way, when we live in this counterintuitive ethic, we, we show forth the love of Christ. Now of course, we don't live the gospel. Uh, we don't live necessarily the, 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 uh, we don't live the gospel. Jesus alone lived the gospel, and his life alone is what gives us salvation. No one is called to believe in my life or your life. However, when we live this way, we show forth, we give testimony to the love of Christ, who perfectly displayed turning the other cheek so that we might be reconciled to the God of the universe. And we are called to, to, to display that, that similar kind of lifestyle and ethic. Now, of course, this is a general principle that contains many exceptions, like every other moral truth that we find in Scripture. So there are, of course, times when we are sinned against gravely and we do need to uh, report things to governing authorities. There are times when we're sinned against and, and, a, and a relationship might not be able to be restored nor should be restored if there's abuse that's, that's happened. And so there's many exceptions uh, to this principle, but nevertheless, we do need to hear the principle, the principle that we are called to emulate. And so Congregation of Christ, this passage be- before us, this passage about Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and, and mockery is immensely practical It touches upon our ordinary experience. It convicts us of our sin and our view of the church between these two advents. It foreshadows for us the good news of the gospel, and it gives us an example to emulate. Next time, next week, we'll see how Peter's denial of Jesus serves in a very similar way as it foreshadows the cross of Christ.